Our scripture today is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you guys, even though it is hot. I am very, very glad to be here and with you all uh, and spending time in God's Word. We are going to be in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's going to be on page 1011. And I do encourage you uh, to follow along as we work through this passage this morning, as we hear from God's Word. There's going to be many aspects of this passage that we want to draw attention to and really understand within its context. So I I encourage you uh, to find a Bible, whether on your phone, in the pew in front of you, or in your bulletin, so that you can follow along. Um, And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background information about the letter of James and kind of where we're headed this morning. So the letter of James is is written by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, by the time James wrote the letter of James, uh, he had moved from being a skeptic Uh, a person that didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, it says that he and a bunch of Jesus' siblings got together and went out to seize Jesus because they thought that Jesus was insane. And he's moved from incredibly skeptical about his brother all the way to being what is uh, considered by many a pillar of the leadership uh, in the church at Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Galatians chapter 2, or you can spend some time in the book of Acts and just see how James, who started as someone incredibly skeptical about his brother Jesus, to being a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, that is who is writing this letter. And somewhere along the way, uh, James turned from skepticism and to faith. And while God is the only one that gives faith and is working in each of our stories uniquely, it's very interesting to me that the way uh, James is described in 1 Corinthians, it says that Jesus himself, after his resurrection, showed up to his brother and said, hey, There probably was a lot more intense than that, and I'm sure that James's conversion story was rather unique in the history of the church. But uh, the the letter of James is written by this particular individual, a leader in the church of Jerusalem, someone who had moved from unbelief to belief in Jesus and who had seen the risen Christ in person. 
Um, the letter of James, it is considered to be one of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. And the reason that it was written is because of persecution that had broken out in Jerusalem toward Christians. Now, in Acts chapter 7, you can read about a sermon uh, that Stephen gave in the temple. And at the end of Stephen's sermon, he was stoned and is considered to be the first martyr for the Christian faith. And after that, or after that stoning was complete, it says in the beginning of Acts 8 that a great persecution broke out against Christians. And they scattered all over Judea and Samaria. And later we'll see that, you know, in Acts chapter 11, it says they went to Antioch and Cyprus and all of these regions of the Roman Empire trying to get out of town because they were experiencing incredible persecution at the hands of Saul and at the hands of many Jews. And so these Christians who left Jerusalem, who fled because of persecution, they're now basically living the life of a refugee. They're familiar with the territory because they're not going crazy far out into the Roman Empire, but they've lost their homes, they've lost their jobs and livelihood, they have lost all of their connections, both in their family and as they've networked throughout their lives, and they are left with nothing but the gospel and the community that God has brought together because of the gospel. And you can, you can sense in the letter of James that he is writing this letter to encourage those believers that have been scattered through Jerusalem and to call them not to be shaped by the world in which they now find themselves or the hardship that they find themselves, but to be shaped by faith in the gospel that they have received. And so you can imagine the words coming to all these different churches and groups of believers throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and being received with thanksgiving that someone had heard their plight and wanted to speak into the hardships and the sufferings and the trials that they were facing. And while James wants to encourage his brothers and sisters, what he really, really wants to really emphasize, especially in this morning's passage, is that one of the ways that our lives are shaped by our faith in the gospel. And one of the ways that this is expressed is how we respond to the hardship and the suffering that happens in our lives. And while we may not share the exact same circumstances as our brothers and sisters that received the letter of James originally, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to turn a blind eye or repress or try to ignore the suffering that exists in our lives because we all know that suffering and hardship and frustration is not only common in our lives, but it's inevitable. That we will experience hardship, whether because of our faith in Jesus or because we live in a fallen world that is filled with sinners, ourselves included. But James in our passage is going to say that despite the hardship and the sufferings that we experience, God is calling us to endure our trials, not only with patience, but with joy. The reality is, is that what James is going to call us to this morning is a supernatural response to frustration and hardship. So something that is profoundly unnatural, to rejoice when we suffer. And yet, in the midst of this supernatural call, what James is going to show us is that we can endure the trials that we experience with patience and joy, because it is precisely in the midst of that hardship that we 
are enabled by God to know his purpose, to receive his wisdom, and to glory in his grace. And so as we dive into the book of James this morning, I would ask that you would pray with me that God would give us that supernatural ability to see what his word says and to enable us to know his will and to receive his wisdom and to glory in his grace. So would you pray with me before we dive in? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us through all things. We thank you that you have shown us your great love in the gospel by sending your son to suffer for our sin so that through our suffering and hardship, Lord, we would be perfected through and in our faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear of the glorious things that are in your word and in the letter of James. Help us to know your purpose, receive your wisdom, and to glory in your grace as we go through trials. In Jesus' name, amen. So James says that we can endure our trials patiently and joyfully. That can happen in your life if we know God's purpose, receive God's wisdom, and glory in his grace. And so we're going to start off in verses, one, or sorry, verses 2 through 4. If you look down in your Bibles, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. And so the first thing that James points to is he says, you can know God's purpose in the midst of your suffering and that by knowing that, it will enable you to have patience and joy. So what does, what is James, what does God's word want us to know about God's purpose in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our suffering? He wants us to know God's aim and he wants us to know God's process in attaining that aim. Look in, in verse 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word that, that is translated here, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, is a Greek word that literally means that this thing is fully mature. Or within the context, it's probably better understood as something that has been shaped and been molded into a work of fine jewelry or a work of quality craftsmanship. God's aim in our trials and in our hardships, whatever way they express themselves, God's aim in the midst of that, what he is, his goal is, is that we would be shaped, that we would be molded so that when he looks at us, he says... What an awesome piece of craftsmanship I have put together. Now, the, the aim and the image of what God is pushing us and molding us into through our hardships is expressed a little bit more explicitly in Hebrews chapter 2. And you don't need to turn there, but here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our suffering, God is aiming to shape us and to mold us into the same source 
of our sanctification. He wants us, his aim in our lives, to look like Jesus. And that the way in which this is going to happen is revealed in the process that James identifies. Look back in James. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So as God is aiming for our perfection, the shaping and the molding of this fine jewelry or this quality craftsmanship to look like Jesus, he says the way that God works as this craftsman is through testing. And the word testing here is exactly what it sounds like in the context. It is the process of purification, the process of tempering that you would assume would go into purifying gold or tempering steel. There needs to be heat. There needs to be pressure that a skillful and careful craftsman applies to the work that he is completing in his item that he wants. This, this idea is uh, echoed in 1 Peter, and we've already spent a ton of time here, but listen how Peter describes this idea of testing. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what James is saying is this testing, this heat and this pressure, this trial and this suffering is being used by God intentionally so that a character trait that doesn't exist in you would come to fruition. The idea of steadfastness in this passage here where it says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness is this idea of strength. If you're working with metal and you apply heat in a particular way, the characteristic of strength is actually woven into the fabric of this you know, metal's existence that did not exist before. And so God says, in the aim of perfection, I am going to use testing and hardship and struggle so that this character trait of looking like Christ would actually begin to exist in your life. That who we are in Christ would begin to manifest itself literally in our lives. And so to know God's purpose in the midst of our trials is to know these things, is to know what God's aim is in the midst of hardship. That God is not seeking to shape and to mold us, for those who are in Christ, into the images of our imaginations for ourselves. He is not necessarily about the same goal that you have for yourself. His goal for you in Christ is much more glorious. And the way in which that goal is attained by God is through the exact and specific testing that he has you experiencing in your lives. That's what James is saying. There's a, a gentleman uh, that, that was speaking in the, in the seminar series that we're going through, The Art of Marriage, that said this so beautifully. I wanted to quote it for you. He says, God will not protect us from what he will perfect us through. And so whatever you are going through, whatever frustration 
or hardship. God is using that specific circumstance, Christian, to shape and to mold you into the image of Christ because that is his goal for you, which is far more glorious than our own visions for ourselves. But check this out. If you go back to the passage here, there's something going on in James that's really important for us to understand about the process of knowing God's purpose through our trials and our suffering. And these are three verbs I want you guys to see. In verses 2 through 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. In verse 3, it says, You know. And in verse 4, it says, Let. All of these verbs are active. They are ways that you need to respond to what God is doing in your life. Which means that we cannot be passive in our sufferings. We cannot be passive in the hardships that God is using in our lives. Instead, what James is saying here is that if you want to cultivate joy and endurance and patience in the midst of your hardship, regardless of what it looks like, small frustrations or life-altering hardship, you need to choose to interpret your circumstances through the lens of faith. And when you do that, what you're going to actually see is a transformation of what your sufferings are. Then instead of seeing them the way the world sees them, as something to be avoided or something to fight against, you would see it as God's workshop, the exact place that he is skillfully and carefully testing what he will perfect in Christ. It's a radical transformation of the way we perceive the frustrations in our lives. Now, in my life, the, the most palpable example of this comes in my college years. Uh, throughout my college years, I struggled significantly with social anxiety. It was something that plagued me and marked almost every relationship that I was a part of. And it was something that ate me up. It, it caused unbelievable amounts of frustration that I would go through this experience of anxiety on a regular basis. And I felt for a very, very long time that this trial and this hardship, this suffering that was in my life was actually separating me from my life. I felt that it was keeping me from the things that I wanted to do in my lives because I couldn't handle the anxiety. And I'm so grateful to be on the other side of this, to be able to look and to say that not that changing my perspective took away my anxieties or that I didn't find significant help with counseling and, and support of my family and my church, but that in the midst of that suffering, I was able to see it instead of something that removed me from the life I felt God had provided for me as the place precisely where God was working and shaping and perfecting me more into the image of Christ. I believe wholeheartedly that in my life, any ounce of humility that you see in me exists because God used that profound experience of suffering and weakness to make me more like Jesus. That would not have happened had my life been sovereignly orchestrated any other way. And so I can rejoice and I can be grateful for that hardship. 
So where in your life is God's workshop? Or maybe to put it another way, where in your life right now are you suffering or struggling to find joy? Is it in your career and how the work that you do is working, seemingly working against you? Is it in the experience of brokenness in the relationships that you have or the relationships that you lack? Is it in your health and limitations that you have because of your health, whether physical or mental? Perhaps it's financial hardship or past trauma or even present injustice, things that are happening in your life right now at the hands of another person that are causing pain and hardship and suffering. All of these, James is saying, God is using that specific circumstance in your life, that suffering and that hardship, to skillfully and carefully and lovingly test your faith so that the purity and the strength of Christ's character would shine through you. This is what we need to know. This is the lens that we need to choose to see our hardships through. Let's be honest. When we experience hardship, though, we often, though we know this is what God is using to perfect us, and though we know this is God's process, the reality is, is whether it's a small frustration or really life-altering hardship, we do not find the character of Christ often expressing itself in our lives. It's almost as if we lack the ability to do what James is saying, and that's exactly what James wants you to feel. It doesn't matter how you shift your mentality if you don't receive God's wisdom as well in the midst of your circumstances, you will not have the ability. And so what we find is that when we suffer, the impurities that express themselves, our sinfulness, our foolishness, our inability to have joy, our inability to show patience, it demonstrates that we need more than knowledge. We need God's wisdom in our lives. And that's where James goes next in verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so what James says is, if you are going to endure patiently and joyfully the struggles in your life. You need to receive God's wisdom. Now, James as a Jew is really, really familiar with wisdom as expressed in the scriptures. He grew up as a Jew, remember Jesus' half-brother, and he would have been familiar with the book of Proverbs. And what's fascinating about the book of Proverbs is that it presents wisdom as the ability and the skill to live well in God's world despite your circumstances. That is, the ability to honor God and to love others regardless of what is happening outside of you. And in the book of Proverbs, two things come out in the first chapter that are very mysterious. In the first chapter of Proverbs, we see that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, how we orient our 
themselves to God in reverence, but it also is expressed as a person, a woman, who is calling out to fools and calling out to those who know their sin and their need and saying, come to me and live with me and receive wisdom. James is incredibly familiar with these passages, and the reason that we know that is because the book of James, if you were to read the whole thing, is constantly alluding to Proverbs and constantly relating to Jesus' teaching. And so for James, wisdom that he was told to seek as a good Jewish boy, he saw as fulfilled in the life and in the teaching and in the work of Jesus. That the person that was calling out for fools and sinners to come to them is Jesus Christ himself. What James does in the book of James is he actually kind of fills out and demonstrates what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. That in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here's what James is saying. In and through Jesus Christ, we can honor God and love others in every circumstance that frustrates us or any hardship that is introduced into our lives. But how do we receive Christ? How do we receive God's wisdom in every situation? And here's where James gets more specific. He's going to identify two things. One, that God's wisdom is given by grace. And two, that God's wisdom is received by faith. Look in verse 5. It says, God's wisdom is given by grace. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Here's the first thing that James does. is He says, wisdom, the ability and the skill to honor God and love others as Christ in every circumstance does not originate with you. You cannot muster up wisdom and understanding in every circumstance in order to live faithfully. It must come supernaturally from God. That in our foolishness and in our sin as it's exposed, we don't have the ability to make ourselves right and correct our lives. James is saying we need to ask God. And then he identifies two things about God that are so incredibly encouraging as we're told to seek wisdom from God. It says God is the one who gives generously to all without reproach. Generously means that not only is God the owner of wisdom, but he also is wealthy with wisdom. It will never run out. God is generously able to give wisdom to those who come and seek it from him. Whatever the circumstance, it'll never run out. And not only will it never run out, but God loves to give it generously. He lavishes his wisdom on you when you approach him in faith. He will give you what you need, and he delights to do it. And that's where the second thing comes into play. He does all that without reproach. God does not look at us in our sin and in our foolishness when we come to him for wisdom and say, I told you so. If you had just listened to me when I told you what to do, then you wouldn't be in this mess. God doesn't do that. He doesn't hold wisdom out as your backup plan 
and say, fine, if that's what you need, I'll go ahead and give you what you need because I'm a good dad. No, God's fatherhood doesn't come out of pettiness. It doesn't come out of a sense of holding it over our experiences. But rather, when we come to him, he gives his wisdom generously and joyfully. The second thing that James points out is that God's wisdom is not only received by grace, but it's sought in faith. Look in verse 6. But let him who receives God's wisdom, let him ask for it in faith with no doubting. So asking in faith is basically another way of saying that when we go to God for wisdom in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our struggles, we trust him wholeheartedly. Now this idea of wholehearted trust is really, really important to James. And the reason it's important is because he contrasts asking in faith with this word doubting. Now when we hear the word doubting, especially in English and especially in Christian circles, we begin to define it a lot differently than James. So let's just take a minute and understand what James is saying. So when we use the word doubting, sometimes we mean, I doubt the truth of what you're telling me because I need more evidence, right? If you just give me more evidence that Bigfoot exists, I might come to the conclusion that you're right. I was looking up some YouTube videos earlier this week, and there's like a lot of weird evidence for Bigfoot. It was very disturbing. If I have more evidence, maybe my doubt will turn to faith. That's one way that we use it. The second way that we use it is that we talk about it in the sense of something that's dangerous. That if I bring questions and concerns about the complexity of life with God, that somehow God is displeased with that. That the church should not be a place where questions are asked genuinely and honestly but should be stepped on and squelched and say, don't ask questions about your faith, just believe what God's word says. That's not what James is saying at all. The church should be a place where genuine and honest, hard questions about the complexities of life with God are answered because God's word is capable of handling that. Here's what James is saying. Doubt is connected to two things. A metaphor a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and another word called double-mindedness. Now, the word double-mindedness really captures what doubt is because it means double-souled or hedging your bets, that you're going to go to God when you need help, but you're also going to hold out that worldly wisdom and the ability to navigate your own situation, that might also help too. And so in James's mind, this person, this double-minded man, is exactly the opposite of a person asking in faith. And so James wants us to be very aware that if we're hedging our bets and hoping God will help us with our life goals, with all this hardship and with all this difficulty, when realistically we're not seeking God's wisdom, we're seeking something else, God does not play that game. In Ezekiel chapter 14, you don't need to turn there, there's a really powerful illustration of this. In Ezekiel chapter 14, amid all of these hardships and struggles and frustrations that the nation of Israel was experiencing because of exile and because of foreign powers and because of how life just goes, here's what happens. 
certain elders of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 14 went to Ezekiel, the prophet, and they said, we need God's wisdom to be able to handle these hardships. And here's what God's response was to them. Son of man, Ezekiel, these men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idol into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his item, uh, idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me because of their idols. So all these leaders come to Ezekiel in the midst of their trials as double-minded men and say, God, help us. We need your wisdom to be able to live appropriately and well because we want to seek for ourselves comfort or significance or success in however it's defined. And God says, the only thing I want to talk to you about is your idolatry. That in the midst of our hardship and struggle, as sin and foolishness and our inability is exposed, James is saying the first thing that we need to recognize is that what keeps us from receiving God's wisdom may be that we do not want God's wisdom, but rather we want to use God to provide us with whatever we desire. James later in verse, uh, chapter 4 uh, describes it a different way. And again, you don't need to turn there, but listen to these words. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, and he'll drop down. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The first thing that we need to do if we're going to seek God's wisdom to be able to honor him and love others and experience patience and joy in our trials is to confess the sin of idolatry. In your career and the struggles in that, is there double-mindedness as you go to God for help? As you struggle in your relationships, is there idolatry wrapped up in the desires that you have in those relationships? As you experience financial hardship of needing to pay the bills and all of those dynamics, is there double-mindedness is there idolatry creeping into that hardship in your life? In the trauma that you've experienced or the injustice that you have in your life right now, is there idolatry? Because here's what pain and suffering tend to do in sinners' lives. It collapses our world in on ourselves and all we can see is what we want and our inability to have it. And James is saying, 
God gives more grace to those who confess the sin of their idolatry and go to God wholeheartedly and ask in faith for what they need, not so our lives can look the way that we want them to, but so that we can actually look like Christ and honor God, love others, and have joy and patience in any circumstance. God enables us to do that when we receive his wisdom. I love later on in James that when we realize this, that often the fire of our trials reveals our idolatry and we feel the shame of that, that it says God gives more grace. That God's response to the Israelite leaders was not rejection. It was, let's talk about the real issue and then I'll give you the wisdom that you need. God is such a good and caring Father to really connect with us in our real need of wisdom and not just our desires and our passions. And so as we turn from the sinfulness of our double-mindedness and to the humility of the faith that we've received, God is going to use this wisdom to reorient us to our trials. He's going to empower us by the Holy Spirit in the midst of any circumstance to not just know how to think, not just know how to live, but to actually glory in His grace no matter what it looks like. Look at verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It fl its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James is saying, as we are reoriented by God's wisdom, in this confusing passage, he is saying that we can actually glory in God's grace no matter what it looks like. Whether it looks like the grace of humiliation or the grace of exaltation. So look where James starts. He says, rich person, that's a, someone, a Christian, who has something in their lives worth pursuing, something that is valuable to them. When that is taken away, that talent, that treasure, that position, position of influence or authority, whatever is valuable to you, when that's taken away, glory in your humiliation. Why in the world would I do that? Why would I boast in lack? And James says, because if we race after that which is fading away, we too will fade away. You see that in the passage? He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. That's the good thing in our lives that is ultimately temporary so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you are running so hard after whatever you want, this temporary good thing that God has in your lives, as it fades away, so will your glory. And so we can't find our glory in that which is temporary. 
Because if we do that, we will find ourselves literally empty-handed. Another way of saying it is you can't take it with you. Right? And James is saying, when that thing that you find valuable goes away, rejoice. Because what God is doing is working it out so that you can receive glory in a way that is eternal. I think it is especially important for us as Christians who live in an incredibly wealthy nation and who live in an incredibly affluent situation, worldly speaking, to really listen to Jesus' hard sayings and not brush them aside or try to over-spiritualize these. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or this saying of Jesus. If you want to be perfect, fully mature, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of possessions. What I don't want you to hear, right, is what I'm not saying, right? What I'm not saying is that when you lose something, it's because God is punishing you for some sin in your life. That's not what James is saying, and that's not what I am saying. And I'm also not saying that when you lose something in your life of value, that God is taking that toy away like a father would when a child is using that toy inappropriately. God is not petty, and he's not flippant. Here's what James is saying. A person who takes the purifying experiences of sanctification seriously, that person is laying up treasure in heaven and they will find glory in the midst of humiliation. So James turns from the rich man and he turns to the lowly brother, as he calls him, or, or maybe even to understand it within the context, he turns to the humbled rich man. And he says, glory in your exaltation. God lavishes exalting grace upon exalting grace on the lives of those who are humbled in Christ who have given up their double-mindedness and their idolatry, who come to him and ask in faith wholeheartedly for his wisdom, for his joy and his patience. And later James will say, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom for which he has promised to those who love him? That's in James chapter 2, verse 5. This incredible claim that we can glory in humiliation because God is providing glory in the exaltation that we experience in Christ is really beautifully displayed in the life of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you may know Johnny's story that as a young teenager, she was an incredible athlete and found a lot of joy and passion around her ability to perform in sports. And one day, she was doing a dive into a shallow lake and she left that lake paralyzed. 
And Johnny wrote an article very recently, like in, within the last week, entitled, Why Johnny Erickson Tata Praises God for Not Healing Her. I would definitely encourage you to read the entire thing, but here's the gist of it. Johnny tells a story about how she became paralyzed, how God took away her ability to move most of her body so that he would perfect her. And one of the ways that that expressed itself is that she went from healing tent to healing tent, asking people to pray for her, elders of her church, other Christians, that God would heal her body. And after many attempts at hoping to receive healing, Johnny wrote this. In the last 50 years, I have been daily dying to self and rising with Christ. Dying to self and rising with Christ. Dying to self and rising with Christ. I have learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin and that our physical aches and pain and broken relationships are not his ultimate focus because he cares, while he cares deeply about these things, they are symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wanted to teach us to hate our transgression as he grows our love for him. I have not experienced the same level of suffering that Johnny has in my life. But God's word is clear. If we truly want to receive God's wisdom and joy and patience in the midst of our trials, then we need to reorient ourselves to the full spectrum of God's grace. The last verse beautifully declares what God wants to do for us in Christ. He wants us to receive the blessing of God's promise. Blessed is the man, in verse 12, who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God promises that as we know his purpose, to perfect us through the process of testing. As we repent of our double-minded idolatry and come to him asking in faith and trust wholeheartedly, we will receive his wisdom and he will empower us to live as Christ in every circumstance that we face, whether small or large. And that through it all, we can glory in God's grace because he is preparing us to receive the crown of life. It is my hope and my prayer that we would be a people that suffer hardship in this way. So that our joy would be complete. That our joy would clearly demonstrate our faith in the gospel. So that as we experience the inevitable hardships of life, the world might see Christ more clearly. And that we, as God's people, would grow in our patience and grow 
in our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for your word. Thank you for speaking into our hardship, into our frustrations, and into our sufferings, and using them by your sovereign care to perfect us and shape us into the character of Christ. Forgive us, Lord, of our idolatries, wherever they may be, and help us to seek from you the wisdom to live like Christ in all of our circumstances so that we would glory in and through him and receive from you the crown of life, its joy now and in eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.